The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's a new year, but it feels like more of the same. The events of last week were troubling to say the least, but I do want to say thank you to all of our friends in Georgia who helped move us in the right direction. Look, we've all listened to a lot of people in the past week who are far more articulate than us talk about what's happened in our country, and yet for me, there are, are no words. Sharon and I were texting throughout that day and couldn't bring ourselves to hit record. We did talk to friends and family through the course of the night, just trying to make sense of everything that was going on. But we decided to do what we always do, have a conversation about someone else's experience in hopes that it can engender greater empathy and understanding, because that's all we know how to do right now. This week's guest is Kathy Irway, and while our conversation revolved mostly around growing up in food, two of our favorite topics, I'd actually highly recommend checking out her community-driven podcast, Self-Evident, which she does with a team of amazing people. Their show really examines some of the issues of race and identity that we face in our country. It's a beautiful show that really tackles some of the topics that are on our minds now more than ever. Please stay safe and healthy out there, and do not stand by while this happens to our country. We can all make a difference somehow. We all have to make a difference. And now back to our show. I think my name doesn't express me and who I am. I love to collect old Chinese cookbooks. And I'm looking for names that are from Chinese Americans when I look at the binding on the side. So if I had seen Kathy Airway or some Western sounding name, I'd probably been like, oh, okay, next. <laughs> You're literally judging a book by its cover. <laughs> I know. But here's the thing. That's just one of the things. It's a fact of life about being mixed race. And you can't change. You can't, there's no control over it. And people are just going to have to get used to it. You can't assume anyone's identity anymore. So I think that's good. My name is Kathy Airway, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Kathy Irway, host and co-creator of Self-Evident, a really amazing podcast that's been exploring Asian American story. And like our show, Kathy and her team unpack the experiences, labels, and stereotypes in the American experience with a focus on Asian America. And while they have just had a show talking about Mulan, which I totally wanted to do on this podcast, they actually cover some pretty serious topics. They're now in their second season. They're reporting and responding to xenophobia and structural racism that we're facing in their society. And Kathy's also an award-winning food writer, so I can't recommend enough that you check her work out. We'll put the links in the show notes, but definitely go check out Self-Evident wherever you get your podcasts. So what do you think, Sharon? I love 
that Kathy writes about food and she's huge in the food space. And food for us is not a central part of things, but it's a topic that we talk to all of our guests about. So it was really interesting to get her take on how food has played a role in her own life, how recipes and cooking and those experiences have helped to shape her and to talk about her passions in that area. Yeah. At some point we have to make the mom dish cookbook. Like I want to print it out. I already have ideas for it. So yeah. I definitely think we should. I feel like we, we should come up with some number, like let's say it's 50 recipes after all of those get published live. We should definitely issue a cookbook. All right. We'll set up the Kickstarter guys. So, uh, <laughs> we hope whoever's listening wants to buy our cookbook. And then, I, and then I keep thinking we should have a potluck where everyone break, like gets their mom to make the dish and we all come together. I don't know if all the moms are going to be into that, but I think that'd be really fun too. I mean, I've said before, I, I would do like a, a parallel version of this podcast where we just interview the parents. Uh, yeah. yeah. As long as I don't have to explain the microphone and Zencaster and podcasting. Oh, I can see you getting so frustrated by that. Like just getting them to hook up the, the technology the right way. You know, it's funny. So my other podcast, I interview these senior execs and I was so afraid embracing for that. Don't yell at your dad moment. Yeah. But what I realized if it's not your parents, your patience is a little bit easier. <laughs> Maybe for you. I don't know. I feel like I would equally get annoyed with people, but but you're usually the tech guy anyway. So I, I oh, don't say I, that. Don't I say wouldn't, that. I wouldn't be the one helping. <laughs> but back to Kathy. It's funny. She's mixed race and her mom is Taiwanese. Her dad's American. So I'm going to assume that means white. But she talked about how her mom was really tight-lipped and didn't share as many of the stories of her upbringing because of the nature of it, right? Mm -hmm. And I saw a lot of parallels in my own parents. Like my mom would always tell the stories of the mango tree and this, that, and the other in England. Actually, you know, it's funny. She tells more of the stories from her happy times in Africa versus in England. Versus my dad, there were no stories, Mm -hmm. very few stories. Yeah, Um, And it's because of the nature and some of probably the tragedy and trauma of his upbringing. And I think that's kind of what she was relating as well, that she wasn't hearing from her parents. Now, what are your parents like in terms of stories of the past, Sharon? They are. That's such a good question. I should do a podcast. Yeah. They've been very open about all the good things. So I like I, I don't think my parents were tight-lipped at all. They were just like selective sharing of information, right? So I learned a lot about my dad from his friends, actually. And... <laughs> And so apparently, like, I know my dad is someone who, like, he he owns a business. He's he's a great guy. He loves me. He loves my kids. Like, I've never really thought about what my dad like was like as a teenager. And then I remember growing up and, like, his friends would come over and they would just have all these stories about him that I never would have associated. And this might be too much for the air, but I actually, I I dated a guy once where his mother had maybe gone on it, like had dated my father back in the day. So it was a very awkward situation where she was like, wait, are you his daughter? And I was like, yeah. And and then she kind of responded in a weird way. And then I remember talking to the guy I was dating. I was like, what do you think that's about? And he was like, I think my mom dated your dad. And we were like, okay. And we ended up, we, we decided not to see each other. Because <laughs> you're like parallel universe siblings. Like too weird. Yeah, no, it just, the whole thing was just a little like, you know, blew our minds. So we couldn't deal with it. But it was stuff like that. It was kind of like, wow, dad, I never knew you were such a player back in your day, you know, a ladies' man. <laughs> it, it's funny how we we almost create these characters of who our parents are and who they were, must have been, right? Like right, we can't right. admit that there there is this deeper story. And 
I guess that's how I'll bring it back to Kathy. The, the thing about her show is, you know, unlike ours, she goes in really deep as a journalist with a lot of different people on a single topic. And it weaves together a, a really interesting narrative to talk about some of the problems like head on that, that are going on in our society, as well as reacting to Mulan, which <laughs> is, <laughs> I'm so upset that they did that before we did. So yeah, we hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Kathy Irway. Kathy, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you. Yeah, of course. Thank you. So you're becoming kind of a big deal in the podcasting space. (laughs) And I I think a lot of our listeners have have heard your show. If they haven't, they need to check it out. But before we get into your work, I'd love to learn a little bit more about who you were before this kind of journey started. Can you tell us a story from your childhood? Yeah, I'm trying to think about what is a good story from my childhood. And I don't know, for some reason, this came to me when I was little, my parents and my family, which is my parents and my older brother, went to the shore, the Jersey shore. And I was playing on the beach and a little girl came up to me and asked me if I was adopted. And I think from then on, I just had this awareness that my family was not like everyone's. (laughs) Can you dig into that? I mean, you're, I believe you're half- Asian? Yes. Yeah. So were you with your dad or your mom? Did you you not look like either one of them? I guess you were kind of in between. I think she was probably I can't say for sure. She probably saw my mom. And she thought that I didn't look Asian. And my mom is Asian. That has followed me throughout life. So yeah. When you say that, how did that make you feel? I just realized that people are confused when they look at me or and my family in relation to one another. Whereas like, I never, I mean, you don't have to worry about these things. If everybody, right, was had a different race parents, and there's no confusion there. But yeah, this was different, I guess, for a lot of people, and they couldn't wrap their head around it. When I was in college, I was dating an American girl. She was not Indian, she was not brown. And things got serious. And she actually expressed something like that. She's like, I don't ever want to be in the store walking with my kid and someone not thinking they're my kid. And fast Mm -hmm. forward to today, I'm married to a non-Indian person. (laughs) And my sister also is married to a non-Indian person. And my podcast co-host, Sharon, is married to a non-Chinese person. And our kids are this mix. I I joke with my daughter all the time. She's lighter than me and darker than her mommy. And... (laughs) I don't know if something's changed. I want to think something's changed, or at least my perception or my fear of that has changed, that it doesn't matter. I mean, it does. But when I drop my daughter up at daycare or we go to the store, I don't feel the eyes are kind of confused. That's good. Mm, I feel like it's changing just by power of like sheer numbers. Yeah. Yeah. I actually don't have any friends. I don't know any friends' kids who aren't mixed race right now. So that's interesting. Yeah. It's a growing thing. I've kind of had an opposite experience with some of that where, and in certain circles, where people thought I was the nanny for my kids. Yeah. Yeah. So you talk about- I know, which is why (laughs) I find that to be really interesting. I think it depends on, you live in Brooklyn. It's very diverse. There's a lot of biracial families, mixed race Mm -hmm. families there. It's kind of like the thing to do. I hate to see it say it that way, but it's all the cool kids are doing it. But I've definitely gotten responses from people that are in more monotonous groups. Monotonous? Yeah, I'm going to call them monotonous. Homogenous. Homogenous, monotonous. No, to me, yeah, but you're homogenous groups where they literally couldn't place me. And then when they found out later that I was 
the mother, some of them actually like, I guess, cause it didn't occur to them that that would be offensive or weird. They're like, Oh, I didn't, I thought it totally, she was just like, I totally thought you were the nanny. And I was like, that's not okay. It's not okay that you thought that, but it's really not okay that you just told me that. <laughs> Yeah, what do you got against nannies, Sharon? Nanny's working Nothing. really Nothing. It's hard. just when you're the mom, you want to be the mom. <laughs> so, Kathy, I mean, the easiest way to describe what you do for me is, even though you're across mediums, you're kind of a journalist. And is that what you always wanted to do? Or what, or what did little Kathy want to be? And Aww. what did your parents want you to be? Aside from a non-adopted person? I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Too soon? What's, I don't know what the no. statute of limitations on that is. Oh, no. <laughs> no, that's a great question. I actually wanted to be a writer, which in my little person's head meant like a novelist or story writer or something like that. And I actually studied creative writing in high school and college. But then I realized that this doesn't seem to be very viable of a path. And so I, yeah, I got into writing. I never had formal training in journalism, but that's really what I love to do is nonfiction about events of the day and food. So, yeah. Well, one, th- one thing I want to probe on though. So you had an Asian parent and a non-Asian parent. Mm-hmm. Is what both of them wanted you to do? Were they on the same page? Was there the stereotypes on one side, the non-stereotypes on the other? of what they wanted you to do? I think that ultimately they wanted, they weren't like too strict about what I chose as a career. Although, I mean, if I, I remember when I was really little, I'd entertain the idea of being an actor and they were not into that. So yeah, I think there was more like activities. They really steered me towards playing piano and doing a lot of music, but ultimately they didn't really like say, you have to be a doctor or anything like that. So I mean, but yes, it's different. If I were like, hey, I want to be a rock star, I don't think, I think they would have had a lot more pushback. <laughs> so actor and rock star, no. No. Writer, yes. Writer, that was okay. <laughs> cool. And is it because it was more of like a, well, were you, th- I guess, journalists versus creative writer? Would that have been a differentiation at all? Or I think they saw this as a, as a respectable position either, either way, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. How are you different from that little girl? And then how are you the same? I don't think I'm different. <laughs> I think you're I'm the same. <laughs> the same, confused, wannabe writer. <laughs> I do want to dig a little into the thing you're doing right now. I mean, you've written, you've had a lot of published articles, you've written books, you've had a we pretty won a James book. Beard Award. Can we just <laughs> plug that too? It's pretty amazing. Oh, my publishers would love to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, and, and then you decided to, and I know it wasn't your first one, but you decided to start a podcast. What got you there? Can you talk to the journey of how you got to the thing that you're doing right now? Sure. I So when I first started podcasting, we actually called it radio. It was like internet radio. This was in 2009. And I was really involved with my local sort of food movement in Brooklyn and New York City. And so Heritage Radio Network was not called a podcast network, but it was because it was online only. And they asked me if I wanted to do a show. And so, yeah. And so gradually my show became an interview show about cookbook authors or food book authors and food politics book authors. And I tried to get a mix of folks like food memoirists and so forth. But it's an interview format. It's all live, completely unscripted. And there's so much you can do with that. And we were all like working 
pro bono. It's a nonprofit organization. So fast forward many years later, Gimlet called me up one day or emailed me and asked me, they told me that they were working with a client on a new podcast. And that became Why We Eat What We Eat was about food. And the client, it was sponsored by Blue Apron, but it wasn't about Blue Apron. It was just like taking yeah, a different like being blue raper wanted to be brand adjacent to great food yeah exactly. the evil marketer in my brain gets it yeah, yeah. got it yeah. yeah well i guess they didn't see that it had much effect on or like return on <laughs> investment was impossible to measure so it lasted only one season but it did pretty well it got nominated for awards and people seemed to really respond to it and i really enjoyed because at that time i was trying to figure out how to do a narrative produced podcast series. So that really dovetailed with my interests. And then I guess an old friend of mine, James Boo. I heard he's into ska. (laughs) He was really into 90s ska. He was. (laughs) Back when he was a teenager. But yes, he's trying to produce an episode right now about Mike Lee. The uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know. Okay. Asian oh, sorry. I, I don't know if that yeah. came out. Asian yeah. teenage ska nerd. So, yeah. Okay. Exactly. It's so great. I'm so glad that you know that because I was like, James, you've got to do this episode. I know it. This is There's this, this is guy, Roman, who's totally going to listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, that's great. But yeah, James and I have known each other, I guess, through food writing for a decade or more. So, he's like, I really want to do this community-driven podcast. It's for Asian Americans. It's going to be like deeper storytelling, really intimate storytelling. And I was like, this sounds great. So I joined for the first few meetings to discuss it with a whole big Motley crew of folks. And then they then they decided that I was, I guess I had the most experience in hosting. So now I'm the host of the show. And so yeah, it's been great. They gave you the golden mic. They did. Yeah, basically. Sharon, Sharon, it sounds like they were a lot more prepared than us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds very organized, what you just described. <laughs> well, I guess, uh, yeah. And I guess strategic. Like the whole, yeah, but the whole idea or the philosophy behind it, and we're still figuring it out, is that we want it to be community-driven and more kind of collaborative. So that was why, yeah. Everyone likes to talk about good food, and this kind of backs up a little I love that you're so into food. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's not that non-Asians aren't food obsessed, but I feel like, and I can now almost say this, I don't want to say with statistical significance because we're not at N equals 200 guests, but I feel like that such a large percentage of second and third generation Americans, not just Asians, we are. And I sometimes wonder if that's because of us being caught between two cultures from the get-go. So I literally had an obsession with pizza and my mom's curry, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. I'm literally caught between two worlds in the food I eat. But I later on discovered, and, and this is why I say second and third generation. I always assumed my parents weren't into or were as into new foods and trying new things, right? Just like because once I got my own job and my own money, I was like, oh my God, Thai food, Japanese food, Indonesian food, et cetera. And I remember my mom came and visited me when I was living in Singapore and she just wasn't having it. She was like, French fries, rice, that's all I'm going to eat. And I guess my question to you is, talk more to your, it's not an obsession, but just this, you have this deep passion for food that's really pronounced itself in parts of your career. I think there's something to that, Raman. I think that I have been fixated on food because it's so fascinating how different the two cuisines were in my household growing up. 
And not just the cuisines themselves, so not the difference between a meatloaf and like a stir fry dinner, which could be on any given night I might have either, but also the cooking method and preparations and philosophy, I guess, behind food was so different from what I witnessed. My dad only used cookbooks and he never strayed from the recipe. It was word for word. He literally could not do anything without a cookbook. And my mom just doesn't use any recipes whatsoever. She just does things by intuition, by memory, by preference, whimsy. The art versus the science. Yeah. 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 And so those very different philosophies, I thought that was really interesting. And my whole family has an appetite for all kinds of foods too. So we would also explore. We were like, oh my God, that's like that place has the best hot pastrami or like that place has the best clams with white sauce, linguine, or that place has the best XYZ. So, I mean, and I grew up in New Jersey, so there's plenty of things to to try. So I guess, yeah, we just had a fixation on food. And, and then, of course, when I went to Taiwan, when I was a in-college student, I realized that Literally everyone here and their grandma and their nephew is obsessed with food. So, okay, that must be where I'm getting it from as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think food is just such a nice way to experience a culture, right? When you go to, I know when I visit a new city, the first thing I do is want to experience the restaurants that are local to that area. Because I think it gives you such a, just such a sense of what everyone who lives there or who shares that experience is literally eating and putting into their bodies. And I think it's funny, you blew my mind a little, Roman, when you mentioned that your mom wasn't as open because I start to think about my parents and you're right. My generation, our generation, and definitely my siblings, my cousins, my friends, like we're all very, we're not foodies, but I'll definitely look at New York Times reviews about restaurants or have, I used to own a copy of the Michelin Guide. Those things are really important to me in many ways. And my parents kind of have their staple places that they go to or or the staple cuisine like they'll go to every chinese restaurant no matter where in the world i think food's like music right you can develop broader tastes as you get older but in your formative years what you're exposed to informs kind of i don't want to say your preference but your almost approach and if you think about our formative years our formative years were between two worlds right literally indian food during the week pizza on the weekends for me and my parents formative years was not in a monoculture, but it. my parents, for the most part, grew up eating Indian food. Your parents, for the most part, grew up eating Chinese food and Kathy meatloaf and stir fry, I guess. <laughs> but no, and, and I know there we did, there was a Chinese restaurant that we went to occasionally, but my parents as adults had to adapt and learn versus as kids. It, again, I say this as first, as second and third generation Americans, we were kind of forced to kind of live, keep our feet or almost our plates in two worlds. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a title for your cookbook. I think you have to release a cookbook, Remen. <laughs> so, Kathy, what would you say the mission of your show is right now? If 10 years from now, you look back on the show and you're like, this is what we accomplished. Okay, so self-evident. I, I just hope that we're telling the stories that are not being heard. I guess that's what every journalist hopes to uncover is like finding the stories that really are important and are being overlooked I think that we also have a mission of showing how diverse Asian America is and capturing that in this moment. I mean, who knew that this year would be so difficult for that 
identity and there'd be so much in the news about with COVID and we did not predict that. We just thought it was time because a lot of the content that we've seen around Asian America before this has been a little bit one dimensional. I mean, I just think that there's been a lot of celebration of representation, which is great. And there's been a lot of progress. But now we want to look deeper into problems within the community and mm-hmm. how diverse it is. I think some of it is it, this. You call something it's easy to celebrate and have United Colors of Benetton ad, right? But mm-hmm. it's it's harder to talk about the uncomfortable truths. And I mean, that's something we've tried to do on this show. We don't want to come right out and be like, hey, what was the one racist experience you had? But it is, that's the next question. No, but it's on this show, I have heard things as a proxy for the audience. I have heard things that I am uncomfortable with hearing, right? Because I didn't experience them, but that shakes me into a form of awareness. And I guess I'll ask a question a different way. In your own personal life, I mean, you kind of do have this platform now, but if we were to air this interview in the town of New Jersey that you grew up in, what do you need the citizens of that town to hear that Kathy had to experience? I think that the people in my town would be surprised to hear that there weren't and there historically aren't too many Asian Americans in the town. However, it likes to celebrate itself as a very diverse and a very welcoming place. And it's unique in that. And I think that we need to reexamine what it means to be diverse because, I mean, I guess they would be surprised to hear that. Yes, I agree that relatively speaking, it's incredibly diverse for a town in America. But as an Asian American, I didn't really have too many peers who were of that race and mixed race too. (laughs) But maybe that's changed. So did you ever feel like you had to do things to fit in with everybody else when you were growing up? I mean, don't all kids do that anyway? That's just like, <laughs> that's like it's part of growing grow up. up. Yeah. <laughs> what are some of those things? I think that there was a huge emphasis on sports that was just not part of my family's interests whatsoever. And I felt really lame for not being athletically inclined. And so I felt like pressure to try a sport. And I didn't understand why my parents couldn't care less about sports. Everything from the culture of watching sports, my parents couldn't be bothered with that to actually playing a sport. They were completely clueless. (laughs) What, What did your parents want to do on the weekends instead? Or what did they make you do on the weekends? They made me be in band or play an instrument even before that. And they made me do, I don't know if they made me, but when I was little, I wanted to do ballet when I was a little kid. They're just pretty old fashioned, I think, because they're like, my brother had to do Boy Scouts and it was very gendered. It was weird. What else? I mean, we ate, we cooked a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I have no problem with that. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned, did, I have to ask this because I'm going through this in my household right now. Did you want to be a Girl Scout? Like your brother got to be a Boy Scout? Nobody ever asked me. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I never was. And I don't know. Yeah, it was very gendered. They're like, okay, the boy does this. He plays baseball. He does Boy Scouts. The girl does ballet. But you still both have to do music. That's like a non-gender really specific thing. My daughter, who's almost five, she's been asking about the Girl Scouts. And I think because she read it in a comic book that I gave her, like the character <laughs> is in Girl Scouts. And... I've actually, I've been texting Sharon about it because Sharon used to work at the Girl Scouts corporate. And I'm yeah. like, is this an evil cult? Do I <laughs> allow my little girl to do this? To be like a cookie salesman? And I'm like, yes, do it. <laughs> Most leaders of organizations and companies 
our former Girl Scouts. So I'm a true believer in it. Oh, I wasn't a goodness. I wasn't a Girl Scout growing up, but that's funny, Kathy. Like you, I well, you didn't even think to be a Girl Scout, I don't think, but I wanted to be a Girl Scout and I forgot why. I can't remember if my mom didn't let me or if I ended up getting turned off by the uniforms or something. Something weird happened. I was six or seven and it was a very, I don't think it was a real reason. I think it was a very superficial reason or it was just a decision that was made by my parents that wasn't based on anything. But I didn't, I never ended up joining Girl Scouts. Yeah, I don't know what my parents' aversion was, but I kind of don't blame them. I mean, Okay, the boys get to go camping and learn survival skills, and then the girls go door to door selling stuff. Like, I mean, that's just, <laughs> I might have a problem with that as a parent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that, and that's where some of my and, hesitation comes from. But even like the sports thing, Kathy, I hear you 100%. Other than my dad wanting his kids to collect the balls or serve balls at us, like playing tennis, <laughs> there was like this. There was no emphasis on sport or desire. And I grew up in the South where sports is everything, right? Mm -hmm. And fitting in. And we talk about this a lot now. It's like, I don't know. Do we want our kid to play sports? What does she want? It's We don't subscribe to just kind of over-programming or there's got to be 10 activities. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just, it's like, we'd rather just sit around on the weekends and go for a hike or something like that and be in be an L.A. Right. commercial. So when you were in the kitchen with your parents, was it kind of a 50-50 split on... Asian food and American food? Or was it just kind of whatever they were inspired to cook? Yeah, it was. It was either my mom cooking, but she learned, you know, to appreciate. She loved making spaghetti and meatballs. And like, so she would sometimes cook Western food. But usually it was like Chinese dinner. It was like stir fry and rice. And then if my dad was cooking, it was the weekend and he like made some long, laborious pot of like boeuf bourguignon or something, something like a project. And so do you cook as well yourself? Yeah, I would love to hang around the kitchen and help and just watch. And when I grew old enough to do a few things in the kitchen, I remember loved taking a turn and cooking. That happened maybe when I was like in middle school. It was so much fun. What were some of your go-tos back then? Well, I got a kid's cookbook. I got it for Christmas. It was called The Klutz Book of Kids Cooking. And <laughs> That's a great title. Yeah, well, there's like a series in like the Klutz. It's like with a K, K-L-U-T-Z. And I think it was one of the only like kids cookbooks. It had a wire ring binder. So I picked out a recipe that I'd never seen before. We don't cook a lot of casseroles. Like I'm not from the Midwest, so I'd, I'd never really seen a <laughs> casserole until this recipe. And it was tuna noodle casserole. And I was like, well, I like noodles and I like tuna this looks easy. I open a can of tuna and I open a can of cream of mushroom soup and I cook some noodles and I made it and it was so good. I was like, wow, I just cooked something. And so, yeah, I think that was the first thing I made for dinner as taking over the kitchen. Just me. When's the last time you had your tuna noodle Ooh, casserole? I should totally make it this this winter. I don't think I've made it. I think I blogged about it maybe in back in 2006 or seven when I first started blogging. And I don't think I made it since. It sounds like a real comfort food. Yeah. It is, yeah. Yeah. I probably did the non-canned soup route. You can make a bechamel sauce instead. Yeah. What's your go-to dish now? So you show up at the Airbnb or the house upstate that you're in <laughs> and you got to cook for everyone. What are you doing now? Well, funny you should mention I brought some dried beans because I felt like just putting something on the pot and letting it go for a while. 
I thought I would make like a succotash with all these summer vegetables, but save that for another day. And I found some pork butt in my freezer and I made this pot of pork and beans and it was really good. It was nice and savory and starting to get colder here too. So I just let that cook for four hours, I think, together on a low simmer. It's pretty great. That sounds amazing. I wouldn't say it's a go-to. It was just sort of, I felt like cooking for a, a bunch of people and it's very low effort. Yeah. That's a good dish to share with a big Mm -hmm. group of people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Were there any stories that your family or your parents shared with you in the kitchen that you can remember? Cooking stories? I think about my early memories in the kitchen for the as I was younger, just watching my grandmother cook. I feel like things would just naturally come out, right? She'd start telling me about her childhood or as she was kind of passing down these recipes in some ways by demonstrating them. She was also kind of passing down either wisdom or family history. I'm just wondering if that ever occurred in the kitchen in your home. I wish. My mom is so tight-lipped about things, but occasionally she lets things slip. So (laughs) she like doesn't not want to talk about her past. But I remember one time. Yeah, I, I want to. I want to probe on that. Is that? Part, do you think that's a cultural thing? Because I feel I see that on my dad, but not my mom. Well, yeah. I mean, she kind of came from near poverty conditions, and it's like that. I guess turn a new leaf, right? When you come to America, <laughs> she was making the snack for herself. It was just basically take the leftover rice and then cook it until it's soupy with water, and then fried. She fried an egg. And then plopped it on top and then doused it with just a few shakes of soy sauce. And I was like, oh, I want that. So she, she's like, no, you don't want this. This is just nothing. I was like, no, this is really, really good. I really <laughs> like this. And she's like, no, you just this is just something you eat when there's nothing to eat. And I was just like, what? Oh. But actually, it's a very good piece of wisdom because you can always make something satisfying with a fried egg and whatever leftover grain you have. And I, I mean, who can argue with that? Yeah. Life skills. Survival exactly. skills. Mm-hmm. So your mom left and you said she grew up, only she left, I'm assuming she left Taiwan. Is that? Yes. Yes. Okay. yes sorry. Mm-hmm. So, and she grew up in near poverty. Have you been back with her or have you just been back on your own? If she's not telling you these stories as much, have you been able to kind of pull things out? Because I've had, the reason I bring this up is we've had this experience with my father. Father grew up pre-partition and left after his father died in the 60s before kind of the wave of Asian immigrants came to North America. And it wasn't until my late 20s that my dad started to finally open up begrudgingly. And part of what drove that was after grad school, it's like, dad, I'm going back to India with or without you. You should come with me, you know? <laughs> and but there's so much of this, you say tight lipness. That's what my sister and I have experienced for many years. And we're slowly finding the means to pull them out. And some of that was going back with him. So what has been your experience trying to reconnect, not just with your your mom's culture, but your mom's experiences? Well, I did get to go back to Taiwan with her to see my grandfather and relatives when he was still living there. So we did go as a family when I was really little. And then I did go back to Taiwan with her when I was researching for my book, The Food of Taiwan. And that was really interesting. I think she was really interested because she never really paid that much attention to how special the food was there. And I was the one who was like, oh my God, this is like great. I'm going to write a book about this. (laughs) And so she took more of an interest. So, But as far as I was more just concerned with the food and rather than her life story about 
It is interesting, though. Maybe that that could be for another book. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It sounds like she doesn't want any of those stories coming out. (laughs) Yeah, she doesn't. She doesn't want you to tell the world. She says I can once she's dead. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that is such a such a Chinese mom thing to say. Yeah, definitely. I hear you on that. How did she respond when you told her that you would be hosting a podcast or writing a book? What was their response to that? In terms of your career, oh, it's just yeah, very supportive of that. Yeah, I think she she couldn't really believe that somebody would pay me for any of these things. And to be honest, <laughs> the pay is not great. I mean, podcasting is not really a paid enterprise, but the book thing she was much more excited about because that's something people think is she's grown up with books. <laughs> Most people, it's a physical don't. thing you can. Point it's a to. physical yeah. thing, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So so they're supportive. Yeah, I'm very lucky for that. It- There's kind of one thing you could tell your past self before you started the writing about food, before you started self-evident. If you can kind of send a tweet back to yourself, what would you tell yourself? I would tell myself to think about what my name should be. (laughs) I would pick a different name, to be honest. You wouldn't say Kathy? Yeah. I never liked how my name doesn't have anything Chinese about it. I should have like thrown in... Chen, which is my mom's maiden name, as like a middle name. Mm. That's just something you don't think about when you're like a young. I guess I should have thought about that. But do you, you have think a, there's like a street cred late. to having some Asianness to your name? I guess I think it doesn't. My name doesn't express me and who I am. I mean, when you see the cookbook, The Food of Taiwan, and you see like a Western name, I probably. I mean, I love to collect old Chinese cookbooks, right? So that's a passion of mine, and I probably would have. I'm looking for names that are like from Chinese Americans when I look at the binding on the side, right? <laughs> so if I had seen Kathy Airway or some Western sounding name, I'd probably have been like, uh, okay, next. <laughs> You're literally judging a book by its cover. <laughs> I know, <laughs> by the author's name. <laughs> I know, but here's the thing. That's just one of the things that's a fact of life about being mixed race. And you can't change, you can't, there's no control over it and people are just going to have to get used to it. You can't, assume anyone's identity anymore. So I think that's good. But it's I probably would have told my old self to think a little bit about that. Have you thought of giving yourself a middle name now? I did, but it's just too late. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I'm already famous with this name. So can't change it. It just seems so intentional, right? (laughs) I don't know. She only did that for her next cookbook, please. We all know that she Yeah, that'd be really awkward. I was going to ask about romance because I'm nosy like that. Kathy, are you are you in a relationship? Yeah, I'm married. So yes, I could have changed my name and taken my husband's last name, but again, I told them it's too late. Too much. Does he have an Asian? Does he have an Asian last name? Did you marry? No, he is white. Okay. (laughs) So, but that wouldn't solve your not having any part of your name being Chinese. It would not. (laughs) Yeah. I would think of what it could have done for your book career. I know. So many missed opportunities. (laughs) I grew up Indian, but kind of assimilated and acclimated into kind of white society and dated some Indian girls, dated some American girls along the way, wound up marrying a Chinese American girl. And she has a similar background in terms of parents removal from her mom's from Jamaica, my mom's from Uganda, even though they're ethnically Indian and Chinese, our fathers left early. There's like so much similar parallels that resulted in kind of our outlook on our own culture. And The ironic thing is once we got together, especially once we started living together, there was more 
comparing of notes about our Asianness or our Asian perception of the world. And so what have now that you're married to a non-Asian person, do you see you speaking or thinking more about your relationship with your Asian culture because more because maybe you're having to explain and think about it to him or less because you're married to an American? Hmm. I think I was already thinking a lot about it before I met him. I don't know that it's changed anything. I've had plenty of friends who are all different races, whether they're Asian or white or and so forth. So I guess I've always thought about myself in context with the rest of America. But it is something I think about if we have a child, I'm going to think about, oh, how do I make sure that they're raised? I don't know. I mean, my brother right now, he has like a two-year-old and he's teaching him how to speak Mandarin. I don't know how. Did, did your brother marry that. a Chinese woman? He did not. Interesting. Mm. So the baby is a quarter Chinese. So, and he's going to speak Chinese. <laughs> but I don't know if I could do that. I don't have the skills. So I don't know. I'll definitely teach the cooking part. I got that. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I think it's interesting. So I did do a little Google stalking of you and going back to relationships and weddings. So, Remen, did you know that Kathy wore a red? wedding dress. Oh, that's awesome. Because red in Chinese weddings is a big, that's kind of the traditional. Hey, Sharon, Indi- Indian people were red too. Okay. Cool. Okay. But I'm we, just... we take our shoes off. We were red at weddings and we were white at funerals. We got all that in common. Okay? I'm, just saying, but I'm saying that in context of passing down culture or, or leaning into certain traditions. And I think that's awesome. as we we're talking about children, but Kathy, you're, you're clearly, you've already done it in some ways, right? You found pieces of your own heritage and culture to weave into new traditions that you're building with your husband now. So I find that to be really, really interesting. And and it was a really beautiful dress, by the way. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I hope to. And you're right. Making decisions like that, those aesthetic choices, but they're also cultural choices. I mean, I hope that to follow through with that in all sorts of ways from reading material to probably teaching or making the kids learn piano. <laughs> <laughs> the word making, it's not the making. piano, it's right. the making. Yeah. That yeah. Is I the Asian probably will. <laughs> I, I would agree with it. <laughs> well, Kathy, we've only got a few minutes left. So we like to kind of switch gears into something we like to call speed round. But we always like to ask our guests if they're ready for speed round. Ooh. Okay, I'm ready. No one's ever really ready. <laughs> and it really isn't that speedy. What's something about you that people don't expect? That I'm older than I look. Oh, <laughs> no one's ever said that before. <laughs> I want to ask the follow-up, no, but yeah, I'm not no, allowed I to. ask you how I'm not old allowed. you are. <laughs> I'm 38. And how old do people think you are? I don't know. Usually. A bunch younger. <laughs> That's a technical term for it. A bunch so while you are a bunch younger than me and Sharon, <laughs> actually a few younger. A few, few yeah. Okay. We're, a few. Bunch, but we're not that few. old. Yeah, I actually, I did. I want to say I'm guilty. I did assume that. That I she was a bunch younger than 38? I assumed late 20s, early 30s. Is that a bunch? Yeah, that's yeah. usually, I think, yeah, that's a bunch. the ballpark that people place me in, I think. Yeah. I'd agree with that. I would have placed you at 32, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the Asian genes. It's the yep. Asian genes. No, I think it's the jealous vicariousness. It's like, man, she already has a blog and a podcast and a James Beard. <laughs> That's what the young, cool people in Brooklyn right. do, not the old farts like Sharon and I. 
<laughs> That's a backhanded compliment. I hope you recognize that. Caveat. No, I totally hear that. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Next question. Maybe this one's speedier. Think of a book, movie, or show with characters that you could relate to that you'd recommend to others. Oh, actually, I've been reading Alexander Chi's How to Write an Autobiographer Novel. A- autobiographical? What am I talking about? Autobiographical novel. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how to say it, but it's, yeah, it's really great. I love his voice and I could really relate to him because he's a mixed race Asian American. And are you thinking of writing an autobiography? Always. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Not an autobiography. I have, I think, just entertained the idea of doing a novel that has elements. Yeah. So like call it a fictional thing where the main character is based on elements of your life? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't that everyone's first novel? (laughs) Right. (laughs) If you want a cheat code offline, I can tell you kind of the oral history project I did last year that kind of led to this podcast. So, yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Definitely. What is your favorite mom dish? Mm. So, it would be her five spice chicken hongshao, which means red cooked, which means a soy sauce based stew. And it's got to have lots of tofu in it. It's got to have some peeled hard-boiled eggs that turn tan in it, and some shiitake mushrooms. It's the best. That's good. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of, I was going to say, that sounds hard. But then I read your article a couple months ago and reached out to you and saying that is almost, it makes the kind of, it makes a lot of Asian food more distant. And I like that juxtaposition that you kind of attack. And my wife makes a lot of Indian food. It takes too long. Yeah, it's, there was this one piece of it is kind of marginalizing foods that don't fit into kind of a Western worldview Mm -hmm. is something you said. Mm -hmm. And literally by me thinking, gosh, that sounds good, but it sounds so hard. I could never make that. I was like, oh no, I'm the people she was talking about. In her <laughs> uh, but I'm American. It's, yeah. it's where I know I'm American, I mean, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's something you don't hear every day or hear talked about. And I, I hope that changes though. I feel like people should talk about these comfort foods that I know your parents and you are making and so on, right? 100%. 100%. Yeah. What is your least favorite food? Any really stinky cheese. I can't handle it. I can't <laughs> no stinky do cheeses. it. I would like yeah. to, but I know I'm missing out on this whole wonderful experience people are having, but no, I can't do it. I yeah. feel everyone has like a food kryptonite. That's why I like this question actually more than the mom dish question. <laughs> Although Remen hates it when people say their least favorite food is pizza. He's like, yeah. how is that even possible? How is that? No. Yeah. That's- <laughs> we've had, and I think we've had at least two guests that have said that so far. There are people wow. out there that don't like pizza. Yeah. Mayor de Blasio has uh, revoked their New York citizenship. So it's okay. <laughs> we took care of them. <laughs> I actually have a friend who genuinely doesn't like pizza and I don't understand it. I think it's like a mental block though. <laughs> it's both kryptonite, but it's also a blind spot. And I think we all have veto foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So- I mean, you already kind of do have a podcast. You get to talk to a lot of really interesting people. But who is someone that you haven't spoken to yet that you'd kill to speak to? Ooh, I would love to speak with Cecilia Chang. She's a restaurateur. She's, I think, 100 years old right now. But she had a restaurant called The Mandarin. And it was in San Francisco for a long time. And she kind of was a legend because she lived through... Oh, my goodness. Her life story is really interesting. I would like to speak with her before she leaves this world, but who knows? 
<laughs> Cecilia, we know you're listening. You and my mom. So come on, give Kathy a call. Yeah. And last question. What does being a modern minority mean for you? Ooh, I love the name of your podcast. So I love this. I think that it's, we're showing that you don't have to fit into any box. I hated boxes when the race question came up because I don't fit into any one of them. So I think that it's showing that the status quo or the existing definitions or categories don't need to apply in a modern world. <laughs> We're making our own rules and defining our own paths, right? Exactly. It's great. Yeah. Well, thank you, Kathy, for being here today with us. Thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you for doing the work. Please keep doing it and we'll keep listening. And you too. Thank you so much. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now here's a preview of our next episode not necessarily like what we see today, which are these big rallies and massive crowds. People really disengage in the off-season. Between elections, when the real work that affects our lives gets done, people don't have a way to answer the simple question, is the person just elected whether or not I voted for them? Are they actually representing me? It was so frustrating that people didn't have an easy way to know that. I remember looking at a spreadsheet and just thinking, someday the data is going to get there and there is going to be an easy way to track what is happening between elections. It was something where I really felt this needs to exist in order for for our democracy to work how it's supposed to work, for it to be truly representative. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.